God did not make all men equal, Westerners were fond of saying. Colonel Colt did. When it came to the use of shooting irons, however, some men were more equal than others, a fact gunfighters knew well. So, to improve the odds of landing on the right side of this equation, they exercised meticulous care in selecting their firearms from among the weapons available. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Gunfighters and Guns in the Old West, including excerpts from Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, by Stuart and Lake. The law of the West comes in the form of a pistol, more often than a badge. As a result, those who know well how to handle it typically rule the day. The gunslinger was one of the most feared individuals in the Wild West. Whether lightning fast with a six-shooter or possessing deadly accuracy with a rifle, the gunslinger knew his craft and was a deadly adversary. July 21st, according to American history books, is the anniversary of the first Western gunfight. On this date, in 1865, James B. Hickok faced Davis Tutt in Springfield, Missouri. Following an argument over loaned money and a pocket watch, the two men faced each other across the city square. Both men reached for their weapons. Hickok's shot hit Tutt in the chest. The man had enough life left to exclaim, Boys, I'm killed, and staggered to the courthouse steps before collapsing. Telling fantastic yarns was a staple of entertainment on the frontier. Life at the edges of Western society was so rough and unpredictable, it made it hard for newcomers to distinguish between pernicious lies, recreational lies, and sometimes astonishing truth. There are several misnomers about these romanticized gunfights, the first of which is that very rarely did the gunfighters actually plan a gunfight to occur, calling out their enemy for dueling action in the street. Instead, most of these fights took place in the heat of the moment, when tempers flared with a bit of bottled courage. They also didn't occur at a distance of 75 feet, with each gunfighter taking one shot, one falling dead to the ground, and the other standing as a hero before a dozen gathered onlookers. Instead, these gunfights were usually close up and personal, with several shots blasted from pistols, often resulting in innocent bystanders hit by a bullet gone wild. It would be difficult to tell who had even won the gunfight for several minutes, as the black powder smoke from the pistols cleared the air. A wannabe gunfighter's career left as little as possible to chance, and spent long hours refining their skills with weapons. In later life, Bat Masterson described the rigorous training necessary to enable him to throw lead quick and straight, as though by instinct. Bat maintained his reputation and expertise through constant practice, as his public and potential opponents looked on. Bat would spend hour after hour shooting in empty cans and sweetening his guns. We used to file the notch off the hammer, he later recalled, till the trigger would pull sweet, which is another way of saying that the blamed gun would pretty near go off if you looked at it. Stuart Lake's November 1st, 1930, Saturday Evening Post article of Guns and Gunfighters provided an illustration by Wyatt Earp of the importance of practice. According to Earp, a shootist needed to accustom his hands to the pistols of those days. The man who coveted a reputation as a gunslinger started his practice early. 
They practice with their guns, just like a card sharp practices with his cards. In a shell game, a man drills his fingers to manipulate the elusive pea. Or a juggler must practice acquiring proficiency. So did the gunslinger practice with his guns. When he could draw, cock, and fire all in one smooth, lightning-quick movement, he could then detach his mind from that movement and concentrate on accuracy. Wyatt states he was a fair hand with a pistol, rifle, or shotgun, but he learned more about gunfighting from Tom Spears' cronies during the summer of 71 than I had dreamed was in the book. Those old-timers took their gunplay seriously, which was natural under the conditions in which they lived. Shooting to them was considerably more than aiming at a mark and pulling a trigger. Models of weapons, methods of wearing them, means of getting them into action and operating them, all to the one end of combining high speed with absolute accuracy, contributed to the frontiersman's shooting skill. The sought-after degree of proficiency was that which could turn to the most compelling account of the split second between life and death. Hours upon hours of practice and broad experience in actualities supported their arguments over style. Wyatt Earp emphasized the importance of being a proficient gunfighter over a grandstand play by stating, The most important lesson I learned from those proficient gunfighters was the winner of a gunplay usually was the man who took his time. The second was that, if I hoped to live long on the frontier, I would shun flashy trick shooting, grandstand play as I would poison. When I say that I learned to take my time at a gunfight, I do not wish to be misunderstood, for the time to be taken was only that split fraction of a second that means the difference between deadly accuracy with a six-gun and a miss. It's hard to make this clear to a man who has never been in a gunfight. Perhaps I can best describe such time-taking as going into action with the greatest speed of which a man's muscles are capable, but mentally unflustered by an urge to hurry, or the need for complicated, nervous, and muscular actions, which trick-shooting involves. Mentally deliberate, but muscularly faster than thought, is what I mean. One example we find in history about being mentally deliberate in a gunfight is when Bat Masterson tested this skill in Sweetwater, Texas. In 1876, Bat Masterson became confronted by a man enraged with jealousy over a saloon girl. The details of that fight were never fully unraveled, but Bat took his time to lay out his shot. What is certain is that Bat took a Sweetwater girl named Molly Brennan from under the nose of her former lover, a retired U.S. Army sergeant named Melvin King. And when King found them together one night in a saloon, he opened fire on Bat. As the story goes, Molly threw herself in front of Bat to protect him. King's bullet passed through her body, killing her instantly, and lodged in Bat's pelvis. But as Masterson fell, with the sergeant cocking his pistol for another shot, Bat took steady aim and fired back. King died at an army camp the following day. Bat suffered a slight permanent limp from his wound and took to carrying a cane, at first out of necessity, later for adornment alone. Wyatt Earp continues his story about the Western gunfighter giving his personal experiences on how the six-gun is used in a gunfight while comparing the fanning method to direct aim and shoot. Wyatt begins by stating, In all my life as a frontier police officer, I did not know a proficient gunfighter who had anything but contempt for the gun fanner or the man who literally shot from the hip. However, in later years, I read a great deal about this type of gunplay, 
supposedly employed by men noted for their skill with a 45. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. I can only support the opinion advanced by the man who gave me my most valuable instruction in fast and accurate shooting, which was to avoid the method of gun fanner and hip shooter. But old Jack Gallagher once told me, this type of shooter stood a slight chance to live against a man who, as old Jack Gallagher always put it, took his time and pulled the trigger once. Cocking and firing mechanisms on new revolvers were almost invariably altered by their purchasers in the entrance of smoother, effortless handling, usually by filing the dog, which controlled the hammer, some going so far as to remove triggers entirely or lash them against the guard. In those cases, the guns were fired by thumbing the hammer. This method is not to be confused with fanning, in which the triggerless gun is held in one hand while the other is brushed rapidly across the hammer to cock the gun and firing it by the weight of the hammer itself. A skillful gun fanner could fire five shots from a forty-five so rapidly that the individual reports were indistinguishable. But what could happen to him in a gunfight was pretty close to murder. Bat Masterson, Sheriff of Ford County, wrote about the gun fanning method when he described an incident between Levi Richardson and cockeyed Frank Loving. Now, cockeyed Frank was so-called because one of his optics bore a northeast direction to the other. He was about 19 years old when he reached Dodge City and a noted cowhand turned professional gambler. The Ford County Globe said professional gamblers like Frank Loving are desperate men. They consider it necessary in their business that they keep up their fighting reputation and never take a bluff. Levi Richardson was from Wisconsin. He was a friend of mine. Levi came to southwest Kansas to make his fortune buffalo hunting, and I knew him from the buffalo hunting grounds. To some, he was an unpleasant man. Richardson was thoroughly familiar with the use of firearms and an excellent shot with either pistol or rifle. Moreover, he was a high-strung fellow who was not afraid of any man. On this occasion, as Richardson baited Loving, Richardson appeared supremely confident. He stood by the hazard table like a great cat about to pounce, his right hand poised close to his gun butt. Damn you, he growled at Loving, why don't you fight? The young gambler eased his weight from the table, facing the other man squarely. Why don't you try me? Levi said flatly. Richardson's forty-five cleared leather with one swift, fluid motion of his right hand. His left hand flashed across the gun hammer with the speed of a rattlesnake's darting tongue. Richardson fanned off five shots, filling the long branch with gun smoke in one continuous roar. But as his hammer fell in an empty chamber, there stood Loving before him, unharmed except for a minor scratch on his hand. Loving raised his pistol and pumped three bullets into Richardson, who slid to the floor and was dead within a few minutes. Richardson's death resulted from his lack of deliberation which Bat always stressed as essential in the makeup of a successful and long-lived gunfighter. 
Richardson didn't take sufficient time to see what he was doing, and his life paid the penalty. No one, however, who knew both men could truthfully say that Loving possessed a greater degree of courage than Richardson or that he was a better marksman with a gun under ordinary conditions. Loving simply had the best nerve, which is a quality quite different from courage. Courage, generally speaking, is daring. Nerve is steadiness. White Earp continues his story about the Western gunfighter by giving personal experiences from numerous six-gun battles he learned about or witnessed. No man in the Kansas City group was Wild Bill's equal with a six-gun. Bill's correct name, by the way, was James B. Hickok. Legend and the imaginations of certain people have exaggerated the number of men he killed in gunfights and have misrepresented how he did his killing. At that, they could not very well outdo his skill with pistols. One of the rare instances is the Bill Hickok-David Tut shootout in Springfield, Missouri. It wasn't a planned event, but rather it occurred when Wild Bill ran into Tut in the street and was insulted. Bill Hickok, a tall and broad-shouldered man with penetrating eyes, seemed to search out the innermost being of others. His long hair, flowing like a mane, and accented by his preference for ruffled and fancy clothing and broad-brimmed hats, made him an imposing figure. Nevertheless, he was a gentleman with a deep fondness for the ladies, treating them with personal attention and flawless courtesy, until he met up with a gambler in Springfield, Missouri. The incident between Bill Hickok and David Tutt occurred in July of 1865, when Bill Hickok met up with a 26-year-old gambler to whom Hickok lost at the gaming tables. Dave Tutt took Hickok's gold pocket watch for security when Bill couldn't pay up. Hickok growled that he would kill him if Tut so much as used the timepiece. However, on July 21, 1865, the two met in the public square and Tut was proudly wearing the watch for all to see. This insult, of course, soon led to a gunfight, and at a distance of about 75 yards, the two faced off. Tut's shot missed, but Hickox hit Tut in the chest. The wounded man then stumbled for about 20 feet before falling to the ground, dead. Two days later, Hickok was arrested and tried for manslaughter. His trial began on August 3rd, in which Hickok claimed self-defense. Three days later, he was acquitted of all charges. White Earp explains how gunfights in the West did not always occur in a face-off between two brave gun-toting men. But in reality... The opponents were more often scampering for cover. The gunfights were not usually clean either as the fighters were drinking and missing usually easy shots, continued to shoot until they had emptied their pistol. Of those gunfighters that genuinely had a reputation as skilled shootists, they were not usually anxious to match their skills with another gunman with a similar reputation. Instead, they tried to avoid confrontation and undo risks whenever possible. Hickok knew all the fancy tricks and was as good as the best at that sort of gunplay, but when he had serious business at hand, a man to get, the acid test of marksmanship, I doubt if he employed them. At least he told me that he did not. I have seen him in action, and I never saw him fan a gun, shoot from the hip, or try to fire two pistols simultaneously. 
Never have I ever heard a reliable old-timer tell of any trick-shooting employed by Hickok when fast, straight-shooting meant life or death. Hickok's ivory-handled revolvers were made expressly for him and were furnished in a manner unequaled by any ever before manufactured in this or any other country. It is disclosed that a bullet from them never missed its mark. Remarkable stories are conveyed of the dead shooter's skills with these guns. He could keep two fruit cans rolling, one in front and one behind him, with bullets fired from these firearms. This is only a sample story of the hundreds related to his incredible dexterity with these revolvers. While Bill generally carried his pistols, actually revolvers or six-shooters, but often referred to as pistols, butt-forward and a belt holster or scabbard. The butt-forward gun position permitted either a cross-draw, reverse, or underhand draw common to the planes. Although it has been recorded in history, Wild Bill did shoot from the hip when demonstrating his skills in public with a variety of trick shots. On a particular day, Hickok was on Tom Spears' bench showing a pair of ivory-handled six-guns, which Senator Wilson had given him in appreciation of his services as a guide on tour of the West. As Tom Spears tells it, Bill's two favorite exhibitions of marksmanship, driving a cork through the neck of a bottle with a bullet, the other splitting a bullet against the edge of a dime, both at about 20 paces. So, when Tom asked Bill what he could do with the new guns, he added that he did not mean at close range, but at a distance that would be a real test. Bill then pointed out a capital letter O mounted on a sign about 100 yards away from where Tom and Bill were sitting. The sign with the O ran off at an angle from Hickok's line of sight, yet before anyone guessed what his target was, Wild Bill had fired five shots from the gun in his right hand, shifted weapons, and fired five more shots. Then he told Tom to send someone over to look at the O. The report of Bill's skills of the shooting came back with all ten of Bill's slugs found inside the letter's ring. Wyatt Earp explains why two guns were used by a gunfighter. That two-gun business is another matter that can stand some truth before the last of the old-time gunfighters has gone on. They wore two guns, most of the six-gun toters did, and when the time came for action, went after them with both hands. But they didn't shoot them that way. Primarily, two guns made the threat of something in reserve that they were useful as a display of force when a lone man stacked up against a crowd. Some men could shoot equally well with either hand, and might alternate their fire in gunplay. Other men exhausted the loads from the gun on the right, or the left as the case might be, then shifted the reserve weapon to the natural shooting hand if that was necessary and possible. Such a move as the border shift could be made faster than the eye could follow a top-notch gun thrower, but if the man were as good as that, the shift would seldom be required. Whenever you see a picture of some two-gun man in action with both weapons held closely against his hips, with both guns spitting spoke together, you can put it down that you're looking at a fool or a fake picture. I remember quite a few of those so-called two-gun men who tried to operate everything at once, but like the fanners, they didn't last long in proficient company. Here, Wyatt Earp explains why in a gunfight there was never a bluff. In the days of which I am talking among men to whom I have in mind when a man went after his guns, he did so with a single, serious purpose. There was no such thing as a bluff when a gunfighter reached for his forty-five, 
Every faculty he owned was keyed to shooting as speedily and accurately as possible to make his first shot the last of the fight. He just had to think of his gun solely as something with which to kill another before he himself could be killed. The possibility of intimidating an antagonist was remote, although the drop was thoroughly respected, and a few men in the West would draw against it. I've seen men so fast and so sure of themselves that they did go after their guns while men who intended to kill them had them covered. The result was more of a win-out with the gun in play over the man who bluffed over the cover of his guns. They were rare. It's safe to say, for all general purposes, that anything in gunfighting that smacked of show-off or bluff was left to braggarts who were ignorant or careless of their lives. Wyatt Earp explains why notching a man's gun to keep count of the number of men he killed was more myth than legend. I might add that I never knew a man who amounted to anything to notch his guns with credits, as they were called, for men he had killed. Outlaws, gunmen of the wild crew who killed for the sake of brag, followed this custom. I have worked with the most of the noted peace officers, Hickok, Billy Tillman, Pat Chigrew, Bat Masterson, Charlie Bassett, and others of like caliber have handled their weapons many times, but never knew one of them to carry a notched gun. To expand the idea of notches on a gun, we go back to a story Bat Masterson the humorist once told about a rapacious souvenirs collector. The experience, as Bat Masterson tells the story, became the beginning of a wild tale about gunmen and how they notched their guns for every man they killed. Bat's sense of humor was responsible, and he regarded the joke so highly that he told about it. He didn't dream of the possible consequences. A collector of gunfighters' souvenirs pestered Bat half to death with his request for one of the six guns that Bat had used on the frontier. This collector finally called on Bat in his New York office, and as Bat said afterward, was so insistent about the gun that Bat decided to give him one just to get rid of him. Bat did not want to part with the ones he had actually used, so he went to a pawn shop and bought an old forty-five, which he took to his office in anticipation of the collector's return. With the gun lying on the desk, Bat was struck with the idea that while he was providing a souvenir, he might as well offer one worthy of all the trouble it had caused. So he took out his penknife and then and there cut 22 credits in the pawn shop gun. When the collector called for his souvenir and Bat handed it to him, he managed to grasp an astonished question as to whether Bat had killed 22 men with it. I didn't tell him yes and I didn't tell him no, Bat said, and I didn't exactly lie to him. I simply said I hadn't counted either Mexicans or Indians, and he went away tickled to death. However, it wasn't long before Tales of the Old West, with tales about Bat Masterson's notched gun and the 22 men he had killed, began to creep into print. His case may offer a fair example of how all the others got started. According to Stewart and Lake, Wyatt Earp made a statement of caution when he was asked the question of why five shots without reloading were all a top-notch gunfighter need when his guns were chambered for six cartridges. The answer is merely safety. To ensure against accidental discharge of the gun while in the holster, the hammer rested upon an empty chamber. The empty chamber method was used due to hair-trigger adjustment. As widely as this was known and practiced, the number of cartridges a man carried in his six-gun may be taken as an indication of a man's rank with the gunfighters of the old school. Practiced gun-wielders had too much respect for their weapons to take unnecessary chances. 
So it was only with tyros and would-bees that you heard of accidental discharges or didn't know it was loaded injuries in the country when carrying a colt was a man's prerogative. Brad, when we talk about the use of the gun in the Old West, the Buntline special comes to mind. Who was Ned Buntline? As we know Ned Buntline, who was best known for his dime novels about the Old West, he is also remembered as the namesake of the legendary Colt Buntline Special, a 12-inch barreled 45 caliber single-action army revolver that he is alleged to have commissioned from Colt's manufacturing company. He then, according to legend, gave these specially made revolvers as gifts for Wyatt Earp and four other well-known Western lawmen, Bat Masterson, Bill Tillman, Charlie Bassett, and Neil Brown. Brad, is the Bunt Line Special a myth or a legend? According to legend, Ned Buntline presented the Buntline Special revolvers to five lawmen in thanks for their help in contributing local color to his Western yarns. However, historians have not been able to discover any reliable evidence to confirm that Buntline ever ordered the guns or that Colt Patton Firearms Manufacturing Company ever manufactured them during that time period. Brad, what else do you know about the Buntline Special? Well, first off, it makes me sad, actually, that uh, the only time we ever hear Ned Buntline's name come up in history is with this uh, dumb gun story. Uh, Buntline himself was worthy of a great epic movie. Uh, the The man was a, a pure adventurer uh, in the style of, of you know, Jack London and, and those guys. Uh, his... His life and career from a young man and a seafarer is just great. A fantastic Western story until he eventually got himself in show business and writing and sort of became famous on a different level, which brings us back to the gun story. Um, the, the earliest sort of version of this does come from Stuart Lake uh, in his interviews with Wyatt Earp. And, of course, Wyatt Earp, uh, being the self-promoter that he was, uh, telling the story to another man who was was very self-promoting in his own right, wanting to be the, the first biographer of Western legend Wyatt Earp, uh, the story really grew. Now, to Lake's credit, uh, he did try to do his due diligence uh, after Earp's death and before the, the book was published, in trying to track down the facts of the story, wondering what happened to all of these guns that were supposedly to exist. Uh, one letter that he wrote to uh, the Neil Brown family uh, inquiring as to whether the gun did exist or not. And uh, his response was they, they had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, now, as far as Colt's, role in in the plot line. Yes, Colt did manufacture uh, several long-barreled single-action army firearms from the 1870s uh, all the way up until just before World War II. Uh, Now, these guns were often uh, sold with the barrel that could be attached separately, Um, and they would, you, you could pay for however long you wanted the the individual barrels. Well, my question there would be, did Wyatt Earp or Bat Masterson or Bassett, any of those guys carry that type of weapon? 
Not that we really ever have record for. Uh, not that they they couldn't because the guns did exist, uh, but were no one ever commented on them uh, until after they they were all dead. Uh, the The biggest evidence that we have for why they could have is we do know that uh, Ned Buntline was present at the the big fair of 1873. Uh, as were uh, many of the other uh, lawmen that, that are noticed. So it could have easily, he, he, uh, and Colt did have a, a booth there as well. Uh, so Buntline could have easily purchased guns from Colt directly uh, at that 1873 fair and later presented them to the gunman, but that would have been at an earlier date than he would have been interested in them. Uh, there are even stories that uh, he possibly offered those guns to the man as bribes to try to replace uh, Wild Bill, uh, Buffalo Bill, and Texas Jack in the the play that he had written that they were performing in. Uh, so it's one of those print the legend uh, kind of stories. It doesn't really matter uh, at the end of the day. And it, it's just a great story to tell. <laughs> The references used to incorporate historical facts for this episode of Gunfighters and Guns in the Old West includes the Kansas Historical Quarterly, Summer of 1976, entitled Wyatt Earp and the Buttline Special Myth by William Schillenberg, and the November 1930 edition of Saturday Evening Post, Guns and Gunfighters by Stuart Lake. I think that's it for now. Uh, remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes Podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Whiskey and Westerns on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Join us next time as we take you back to the life and times of Bat Masterson Part 2, The Red River War. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com. If you'd like to purchase one of our books, you can go to worldfamousgunfighters.weebly.com slash books.html.